expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. She can save his life. Let us help her to go to him. She must not be urged or forced to take action. All must proceed without interference. The purpose that brought us together... What purpose can all this serve except the fulfillment of some need of yours? We have but one need left in life, and that is to see the completion of the final moment of our test. Be patient. Patient? Our friend is dying. Perhaps. What purpose can be served by the death of our friend except to bring you pleasure? Surely beings as advanced as yourselves know that your star system will soon be extinct. Your sun will nova. We know. And you also know that the millions of inhabitants on its planets are doomed. That is why we are here. This arena of death that you have devised for your pleasure, will it prevent this catastrophe? No, it will not. But it may save Jem's planet. Of all the planets of Manara, we have the power to transport the inhabitants of only one to safety. If Jem's planet is the one that will be saved, we must make certain beyond any doubt whatsoever they are worthy of survival. How will the death of our friend serve this purpose? His death will not serve it. But her willingness to give her life for him will. You were her teachers. We were. What could she learn from us? Your will to survive. Your love of life. Your passion to know. They're recorded in her being. Her planet will be fortunate. Each of you is willing to give his life for the others. We must now find out whether that instinct has been transmitted to Jem. London. It is Thursday, October 20, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just Right. Fade into colour and colour into black and white Under the bedclothes everything will be and before we get into our subjects today, Robert, I think it's that time of year again where we remind our listeners why we're here and how come we have the opportunity to be here. And we have to remind them that, you know, CHRW is London's community access radio station. And that's why the station provides diverse programming for groups who don't have access to main, mainstream media. And I wonder who that is. Like us. <laughs> like maybe <laughs> us. And, of course, the station has a number of cultural programs, multi-language. You've heard them all on here. London's only gay and lesbian radio program. They provide coverage for the city art groups, tackle social issues that no one else would touch. That's for sure. They play great music, too. <laughs> and they play great music, too. And now, of course, we're asking for the community to support us. So, listen, donations over 20 bucks. Qualify for a tax receipt. Can't beat that. Call us, 519-661-3600. Pledge your support to CHRW. And if the lines are busy, just try again. It's not going to be a problem. And to give you an idea of some of the type of things you hear on CHRW, today's the day. I'm telling you, Robert, these protests are just not ending. And one of the things we're going to be, four of the things we're going to be talking about today. 
I'll be talking about uh, beware of the company you keep in terms of these protests and occupation, and also missing the point how, how so many people are talking about this, and I see very few people, perhaps zero, <laughs> getting the point of what it's all about, and there are some very clear reasons for that. Also going to be talking about hyphenated capitalism, which lets us all blame capitalism for everything, doesn't it? Yes. And uh, you want to talk about, I guess, communism, is that... What you wanted to start off with? Communism, a slow death. That actually just... Uh, Is it really slow? <laughs> yeah, slow yeah. and painful. But uh, I'm actually happy that the protests continue on because, you know, they give us a lot of fodder for this show and for right-thinking people because they exemplify the left. They exemplify the anti-capitalists. There's a lot of video and audio, audio out there which is um, proving our point. Yeah, we're going to be listening to a few things from that today too yeah we got some clips from some uh, the protest yeah. yeah but first mm-hmm. last thursday a little girl was run over on a street in foshan city in communist china now a dozen passers-by ignored her writhing moaning body as it lay in a pool of blood another truck came by and slowed down and then ran over her legs yet more passers-by ignored her some say 18 19 people until finally a garbage collector came by and moved her to the side of the street and looked for her mother. Did you see that video, Bob? No, I didn't. I actually, it was on video? Yeah, it's on YouTube. I would not recommend people look at it, to tell you the truth. I did it simply for this show, and I'll never forget it. It's, it's gruesome. Um, apparently today it was reported in the National Post that she's brain dead. So a tragic outcome. But, as gruesome and as horrifying as the images are, the fact that so many people ignored her as just some piece of roadkill has become the topic of controversy around the world. Why would someone ignore a small child in obvious need of help? If but one of them stopped to help, she wouldn't have been run over for the second time. She may have lived. May not be brain dead. What goes through the minds of people who choose not to get involved when such a little effort could have prevented so much suffering? An article in the National Post on Tuesday enumerated several possible reasons. The driver of the truck, which initially struck the toddler, said that, quote, if she's dead, I may pay only about a 20,000 won fine, but if she's injured, it may cost me hundreds of thousands of won. Some said that would-be good Samaritans are usually held liable for damages or wrongly accused of being a perpetrator and don't assist out of fear of being arrested, imprisoned, or sued. Some blamed a lack of morals brought on by the destruction of the family unit, a lack of religion in officially atheist communist China, a population crisis of too many people in such a small area. Unmentioned in the article is neither the official one-child policy of the Chinese government nor the extremely high incidences of female child abortion or female infanticide in that country. What is highlighted in the National Post is a belief that capitalism is to blame for the lack of compassion in Chinese society. Yeah, because China is so well known for its capitalism. It's the major <laughs> capitalist country in the world. Didn't you know that? Oh, that's just yeah, so funny. Free markets all the way in China. And, and it freedom takes... of speech, and you can go yeah. in and out when you... Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it took a Canadian Jeez. to say this, of course. Professor James Miller at Queen's University in Kingston was quoted as saying that, quote, there's a gold rush mentality. People are clamoring over other people to try to make ends meet, to try to get ahead. 
with the adoption of capitalism. It is seen as being all about self-interest, unquote. <coughs> well, self-interest, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. There's so much wrong in Professor Miller's statement, it's hard to know where to begin. People are trying to make ends meet all over the world, always have, always will, including this country, and yet a child run over by a truck would receive immediate aid here, I would hope, as it would in many parts of the world. To say that communist China has adopted capital capitalism is laughable. It'd be laughable for anyone who knows what capitalism means. And for this, I'll need to distinguish between a person who is a capitalist and the overriding economic term or political term of capitalism. A necessary distinction, let me tell you. And it's, it's I don't know, what's the, what's the word I want here? Bizarre, sad, tragic, that I have to actually go out and explain this to people who actually live in a system that has benefited so much from mm -hmm. capitalism. But we have to do it. Throughout history, there have been capitalists in every country, in almost every period of history. A capitalist... And under every form of government. And under every form of government. You're right, Bob, including Because communism. there has never been a capitalist form of government, so we can't talk Absolutely about correct. a capitalist uh, state in that sense. But I will, mm -hmm. later on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At least explain what it should look like. Now, a capitalist is simply an individual who uses his property or capital as a means to create a profit a landowner who rents out his land, a moneylender who gives a loan to someone and charges interest, a wage earner who saved enough to invest in somebody else's venture, a bed-and-breakfast owner who rents out their bedroom for a night, an industrialist who owns a factory and employing thousands to produce widgets, whatever. All are capitalists who are acting as capitalists. They use their property or capital to earn income or profit. <clears throat> Such people can be distinguished from others who, rather than having or using capital for gain, sell their skills or brawn for a wage. A line worker at an auto plant, for example, a farmhand, a government bureaucrat, a clerk in an office. Now, prior to the mid-19th century, capitalists were referred to as individualists. The word capitalist wasn't even used. But whether it was in the 20th century America or 17th century England, the individualists relied on government to protect their individual rights to use their capital to earn money. For many, it was just a livable wage. But for the fortunate, the adept, the rewards amounted to fortunes, and we saw the rise of very wealthy, wealthy people. For the workers, this disparagement in wealth was inexplicable. They didn't realize the efforts that capitalists took to gain their initial capital, nor could they appreciate the risk the capitalists took when they invested their capital in ventures. This ignorance led to envy, which has led, in some corners of the word, world, to civil wars. In the West, it may not have led to such bloodthirsty revolutions as in Soviet Russia or communist China, but it has led to envy and hatred, emotions fueled by a complete ignorance. Capitalism is also a political system which protects the individual rights of its citizens. Now that's the ism, not the ism. That's the ism. When a person's right to their life, their liberty, and their property, amongst other rights, are protected, then they can pursue economic activities beyond menial labor. They can invest, enter into long-term contracts, develop their property, and employ people to create wealth. 
Without the assurances that their rights are being protected, their risks are multiplied. The future becomes uncertain. They doubt whether or not they should invest in their property because maybe one day the government will just come by and steal it from them, as they do in many places in the world. They may find themselves victims of government bureaucratic whims, police corruption, graft, and bribes. That is why it comes as no surprise when I hear a well-heeled Canadian university professor blame China's capitalism on the indifference shown to that little toddler run over in the street. Professor Miller, like so many, has very little understanding of what capitalism means. Although a scholar of religion and Chinese culture, he is ignorant of his own society's history and culture. He's not alone. Well, you have to be almost um, purposely blindful to the fact that China has this law that forces people to pay more if they uh, let someone live than kill them. And he's calling that capitalism? Like, you have to take your brain out and put it aside and ignore all the facts to even go there. Why would he? It's just amazing. Well, I think his specialty is Chinese culture, Taoism, and religion. Yeah, I have something to say about specialties later in the show. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, his specialty is not capitalism, and why he would be called up to comment on uh, capitalism's supposed role in this mm -hmm. compassionless society is beyond me. The thousands who are occupying Wall Street have proven themselves to be, sorry to say this, utter morons <laughs> when it comes to understanding the society which has given them so much in terms of wealth and opportunity. But capitalism is more than just a political or economic system. An ideal capitalist, or to use the arcane term, an individualist, is a person who has come to an understanding about nature and knowledge. He knows that nature to be commanded must be obeyed. How else could an auto manufacturer mold the metal from the earth into cars and buses? He respects knowledge and yearns to learn as much as possible about his business, his endeavors. How else uh, to succeed in a world where there are so many to compete with? Only through knowledge. But there is a virtue held not only by capitalists, but by many workers as well, that drives them to perform above and beyond their competitors and their co-workers. It is a positive sense of life. An understanding that life is good, whether you make $20,000 a year as a busboy or $20 million a year investing in people's companies, it is this love of life, your own life, that drives many of us. It makes us to be the best we can be at whatever we do. And it is this love of one's own life, which I believe is the fountainhead for our ability to feel compassion for others. Only those who despise their own lives can walk casually by a dying child on a roadside. And only those who love their own life and their own existence, to whatever degree, will stop to help the child because compassion comes out of love of life. The fact that so many Chinese walked by that little girl is a symptom, not of capitalism, but of 62 years of being told by a communist government that your life is not your own but belongs to the state. The 1949 victory of the communists in China marked the beginning of the end of any love individuals could have for their own life, their own or anybody else's. The fact that only within the last few years that some have been allowed 
to start and grow businesses while still under the iron fist of a one-party state has not overturned two entire generations of death at the hand of communist rule. Capitalism and the necessary government protection of an individual's right to their life, liberty and property are integral in the cultivation of a love of life. Communist China is years away from achieving such a condition. Years away. Bob, it's, we, it's, Bob, we should not only pity that little girl dying on the street, we should also pity those who walked by her as they're also dying. But their death is just taking a little longer. You know, I was just going to ask, I was going to say, maybe they're looking at that little girl and saying, I want to save her the, the life I had. You know, just you wonder if they're thinking like that, right? You wonder if they're thinking at all. I really do believe that they're thinking, but it's out of fear, I think, that they walk away. And it's out of... Of course. A hatred of their own life, their own situation. Why help anybody else? Nobody's helping me. That kind of resignation, that kind of loss, that kind of emptiness. But anyway, it's very tragic, and that's what I have to say about it. Communism, not capitalism, is to blame for such a callous response. So anyway, we're going to take a little break here, and when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion on capitalism. Back after this. I believe that you have to separate and should separate sharply the issue of what you do about people in distress from how you handle the industrial system. I do not believe you ought to have a special program for displaced workers. What you ought to have, and what all societies do have, is some mechanism, voluntary or governmental, which will assist people in distress. We have another program in this series. But you were saying, may I bring up something mm -hmm. uh, that we were discussing during the commercial? The worst thing today is the attacks on ability. The, uh, I call this today's atmosphere the age of envy, actually. And I asked you whether uh, you would be attacked by people for your success. And I don't know whether you want to give the answer to the audience that y you gave me. Yes, yes, I am. Well, that's what I regard as the most immoral thing on earth, to attack a man not for his flaws, but for his virtues. Because to make a success of yourself in any line of rational activity is a great virtue. And they, people will attack you for exercising your ability, for hard work, for consistency, for ambition. And they will want to make you feel guilty of it. Mm -hmm. That is the greatest evil, according to my philosophy. And, wait, say that again. The greatest evil, according to your philosophy, is to attack an individual because of virtue. What I call it is uh, to experience or act on hatred of the good for being the good. That is attacking people for their virtues, for their achievements, for anything they have which is a value, actually. Not for their flaws and not for their evil. In fact, people who preach that are the ones who are mawkish about the evil people, the failures, the liars, the cheats. Everybody who is weak suddenly acquires some kind of value. But anyone who is a success has to be attacked for his success. And look at how you have been attacked. Oh, I know. How you have been criticized. That there are you many, know that? There are many people in this country, forgive me, in this world who think you're daft. They don't. They want you to see that. Well, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, okay.
Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> great comeback. That was great. That was Ayn Rand, of course, talking to Tom Snyder in 1979. And also just before that, Milton Friedman from the Free to Choose series, also 1979, which happened to be that coming out of the Carter era period where we had many of the same symptoms as we do today under Obama's period. Now, <clears throat> you know, another form of capitalism is what we're doing here at the radio station today, raising funds for the station. People often think that voluntary activity and charity is not part of capitalism, when in fact it is. Because voluntary is the nature of capitalism. I mean, if we were going to the government to say, give us your money to keep this station going, that would be another issue. But we're asking for people to call the station, 519-661-3600, pledge your support to CHRW, and again, if the lines are busy, give a call again. It is fundraising week at CHRW this week. Now, Robert, just from what we just heard there, you know, I recall Lori Goldstein making a really interesting observation about what basically Ayn Rand just said. He said, you know, the real proof that the protesters aren't out there for any concern with the poor is that they're not talking about the poor. They're not talking about the lower 10%. They're talking about the top 1%. What kind of mind goes there that is really concerned about dealing with the poor? Why would you even go up there? I used to run into that problem with Jeff Schlemmer all the time on left, right, and center when we used to do that show. Constantly. Every solution to him was the, the rich. Go get the money from the rich without any consideration of how the rich get their money. Why don't we do what they're doing instead of robbing them? (laughs) But nobody wants to do that, of course, because socialism is about wealth without effort. That's right. And I think we're seeing that in spades with these occupiers of Wall Street. For the most part, uh, their message... Not exclusively, I think. No, not exclusively. There's a tremendously mixed message coming out of the the, the protests, I think, and that that's the problem more than than if it was just one message. It's incoherent, if you ask me. However, in their message, there's one phrase that's been repeated enough to be recognized as a particular grievance of the participants. Crony capitalism, I've heard, mentioned several times. Cronyism generally been understood to mean the hiring or promotion of one's friends into positions of authority or responsibility. Now, if it takes place in the private realm of a private company, this may not seem to be of anyone's concern, uh, except perhaps the shareholders of the company. I'd be yeah, they concerned. call it nepotism or something yeah, like that. I'd yeah. be concerned if I was a shareholder and if the person hired is incompetent, then the decisions made may be bad business move, but there's certainly nothing illegal about it, nor should there be. Not in the private realm. However, today, crony capitalism is meant to refer to the cozy relationship that the captains of industry, banking, and finance have with those in government. Remember, the TARP bailout of the Bank of America and Citigroup, the bailout of the audio, auto industry, the revolving door between personnel and the U.S. government and Goldman Sachs. These are just some of the examples of cronyism of a kind that should be properly labored, labeled government cronyism and not crony capitalism. Crony capitalism of the kind the occupiers complain about couldn't exist without a government which has squandered trillions of dollars in bailouts and favoritism. Without the assistance of successive U.S. governments from Nixon's bailout of Penn Central Railroad to Obama's bailout of General Motors, crony capitalism, as it's called, could not exist. So rather than protesting on Wall Street, 
the occupier should be camped out in Washington. Of course, this will never occur since any equation involving government and business, it's always business which will be the target of left-wing protest. They're the victim always, business. This use of hyphenated capitalism isn't new. We've had libertarians promote something called anarcho-capitalism. Then there is free market capitalism, mercantile capitalism, industrial capitalism, financial capitalism, and welfare capitalism. All of these variant forms of what is supposed to be capitalism are just examples of government involvement in the economy. In a, in a word, fascism. These hyphenated types of capitalism can be broken down into two groups. One group requires the intrusion of the state into the economy. The other requires that there be no government at all. Zero, zilch, nada. Both are abominations of the noble ideal of capitalism. As an aside, there's one other hyphenated capital, uh, capitalism, laissez-faire capitalism, which, when understood properly, simply means... Capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming back to that a little later, too. Now, this is why you rarely hear me or Bob speak of uh, laissez-faire, because uh, the term's redundant. Capitalism is capitalism, pure and simple. When the state favors one company over another, as in cronyism or bailouts, or when the state creates marketing boards, antitrust laws, or competition bureaus, we're not seeing capitalism at work. We're witnessing the misuse of government's power to rig the economy. We're witnessing a properly hyphenated form of socialism called fascist socialism. The existence of private property, yet controlled by government. When libertarians speak of anarcho-capitalism, unfettered capitalism, or naked capitalism, they're speaking of anarchy, plain and simple. And capitalism cannot exist in anarchy. In order for capitalism, real, unhyphenated capitalism, to exist, as I said before, the individual capitalists must live in a country where their individual rights to their lives, their liberty, and property are protected by a government which is founded on reason and administers laws which are objective and play no favorites. In a truly capitalist society, the government is the referee, not a player. In a capitalist economy, there are no bailouts, no subsidies, no preferential treatment or marketing boards. A truly capitalist society is one where the government and the economy are separate. The government does not own the banks, doesn't issue charters for banks, does not issue a fiat currency or print money. A capitalist society would not see tariffs on trade, corporate taxes, restrictions on CEO salaries, or government departments deciding whether or not one company can buy another. The government in a capitalist society wouldn't restrict trade nor promote it. It would not invest in job creation schemes nor set minimum wages. In fact, a capitalist society would see the government restricted to protecting people's individual rights. That's it. Now, the other thing to note, too, is it's not that all those other activities wouldn't occur in a capitalist society. They just wouldn't be done by government. Exactly. That's the difference. Yeah. They would all occur. <laughs> they would do all of this through the enforcement of laws, objectively derived at. Now, such a society wouldn't be utopian, but its government would be acting morally. The ills which plague us, violence, theft, indolence, 
poverty would still exist, but they would not be as a result of deliberate government programs and interference in our lives. The government would play an important role in our lives, however. It would enforce our contracts. It would catch and incarcerate criminals. It would defend our borders. It would make sure that our rights are protected and not restricted. So, Bob, it must be obvious that we don't live in a truly capitalist society. In this respect, anyone protesting crony capitalism, as it's misnamed, are justified in their desire to see the separation of government and the economy. Some of the protesters at the occupation of Wall Street have been properly speaking out against such intrusions into the economy. You'll hear them complain of the fractional reserve system of banking, government bailouts, stimulus spending, fiat currency, and inflation policies. These protesters are few and are often shouted down by the more numerous left-wing protesters who are there to malign business, capitalism, consumerism, and wealth. My advice to such honest press protesters is to go home. Occupy Wall Street is a protest created by the left, by people who hate business, capitalism, and freedom. To use their venue to promote a proper restraining of government is only going to weaken your argument. Let's leave these kooks alone to blow off their steam. And when the dust settles, the more rational among us can promote a proper government by writing, lecturing, taking our legislators to task whenever they do wrong, and by congratulating them when they do right on that rare occasion. Exactly. Let the left alone to do what they do well. Scream and yell. <laughs> well, they can do that. But, uh, you know, I'm going to take what you, what you just said to, to the next point after the break, Robert. I'm going to be talking about... Uh, just how the movements such as they are, are are completely confused. We live in a mixed economy. We have to understand what that implies. Now, what we're going to hear first as we go to the break, and I have to explain this a little. You already did a bit. <clears throat> we're going to hear a rather passionate young fellow from the Occupy Wall Street protesters march from about three weeks ago in New York City. Now, uh, a lot of what he says makes a lot of sense, but he's mixing in a lot of things that shouldn't be there. And when we come back on the other side, you'll hear him again, but you'll hear some other voices too. And it's important to note that those voices are just people passing in the street. They're not part of his group and not part of the group that agrees with him. And all the noise and, and commotion you hear in the background is like, like they're in downtown New York. There's a lot of traffic and people and crowds around, so it's quite a scene. And we will be back after this. Minimize the federal government. When you have big state government, small federal government, our voices are heard at the local level. We can make differences. A whole continent-wide cannot control a federal government with a banking system that prints money like it's paper. You can't even call it money anymore. Gold is money. Silver is money. Green dollars are not money. They're using inflation as a hidden tax. Prices go up. Do your wages go up? No. My wages didn't go up, but prices went up. Gas goes up. Milk goes up. Trains go up. How am I supposed to live? And this is all because our government prints too much money, starts too much wars, so they can sell their tanks, their guns, their missiles. Because that's all America exports. It's guns, missiles, and tanks. That's it. We need to bring production back to America. 
and the Federal Reserve and the fractional banking system. Fiat money. It's a fiat currency. Ones and zeros. 1913, this country died when we adopted the central bank and we got rid of sound money. We used to be able in 1913 to walk into a bank and redeem our dollars with gold. Can we do that anymore? No. What's the price of gold now? Almost $2,000. It's gone up $600 an ounce this year. It's going to keep rising. And it's going to keep rising as long as we have bailouts, as long as we have quantitative easing, as long as our government keeps spending our money. Every dollar the government takes in federal taxation is another dollar that they spend. Every time they spend money, that's your money that they send overseas. They bail out Morgan Stanley and then Goldman Sachs. Who bails me out? No one. Why should Goldman Sachs get bailed out? $700 billion in 08. And they want more now? They want more, that wasn't enough? You're gonna drain. There's not gonna be a middle class in 10 years. And the Federal Reserve. And the fractional banking system. CHRW 94.9 FM and it's fun week here at the station and we would very much appreciate your contribution to help this show and all of the great programming that goes on at this station to continue. Even though it's done by volunteers like Bob and myself and the many others, there's lots of costs involved with Even running though, a radio especially. station. <laughs> especially. <laughs> we need a place yes. to come to. <laughs> we have to repair and replace our equipment. We have to pay for costs such as the rental of our transmitter site and an engineer to get us back on the air when we rarely go off. All of these costs are very real. And that's why we're asking each and every one of you out there, listeners to Just Right, to give us a call. Call us and pledge your support at 519-661-3600 to CHRW. And if the lines are busy, please call again. Robert, we just heard that Occupy Wall Street protester again talking on the one hand about getting rid of the central banks and fiat money, which was a correct point of view, and on the other hand saying bring production back to America, talking uh-huh. about protectionism. And, and people talking about protectionism <laughs> and trade balance. And I'm, and I'm thinking, my goodness, the confusion and the opposition. This is what the protesters are all running into with each other. 
you know, I, I just review some of the headlines, never mind the content. Here's some of the headlines I've crossed over the past week, and they keep coming, and there's still more of these protests planned, I understand, for the coming week, weekend, rather. Uh, rich poor gap widening, confused protesters march on, getting things half right, Occupy Wall Street versus the Tea Party, government and business share blame, rally spread to Canada, anti-Wall Street demonstrations, support broad for Buffett rule, London group joins protests, message is people are very frustrated, that last message being from Bob Ray. And then there's one called Taking It to the Streets by Teresa Tedesco at the National Post October 13th who comments, quote, By occupying the sidewalks and parks near major banks and investment firms in lower Manhattan, the protesters clearly identified the financial industry as the villain. The cozy ties between business and government and the perceived lack of accountability has fomented an anger not seen since the anti-capitalist marches in the late 90s. To that end, student activists, academics, and groups representing a coalition of interests, note that, listen to all these terms, have gathered in peaceful protest to proclaim their anger about their struggles to make ends meet and of the sacrifices they've made on the shop floor while the folks in the executive suites take home millions. To wit, I would say to a half-wit actually, <laughs> the wealthiest 1% of households averaged 125 times the wealth of the median household in 1962. By 2004, the wealth gap was 190 times more, end quote. Now, this, of course, is the irrelevant argument based on the fixed-by-government pie theory, right? By the way, why don't we call it crony socialism and crony labor, speaking to you? That's the real name. Because capitalism has always been the socialist whipping boy. Because so capitalism is the only source of wealth. It's That's the, the hatred reason. of the good for being the good. Yes, and so you have to pick on that. But before I get too sidetracked... Uh, so you have this, you know, this notion that wealth is a mere commodity to be redistributed by those who played no, no role in the creation of that wealth, but who feel entitled to its disposal based on if we vote for them or not. That's basically the whole system we're in, and then we wonder why it doesn't work and doesn't have proper economic results. Well, it's not even operating on an economic principle. How can it? You know, another headline, uh, article headline, uh, this is a time to rig for survival and subheaded the whole capitalist system is being called into question by Max Abelson in New York, National Post, October 13. We find the following differences of opinion on what the Wall Street protests are about. Leon Cooperman, the first Goldman Sachs asset manager, CEO and head of the hedge fund, you know, big guy. Anyway, he says, uh, you know, he's blamed the President Barack Obama, who has continued, quote, to project himself as anti-wealth, anti-business, and socialist in his leanings, end quote. Then we hear from Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stiglitz, who supports the Occupy Wall Street protests and argues, quote, we have too many regulations stopping democracy and not enough regulations stopping Wall Street from misbehaving. We are bearing the costs of their misdeeds. There's a system where we've socialized losses and privatized gains. That's not capitalism. Wow, bingo on that point. But Boo Hiss told the stopping democracy comment, it's the process of democracy that allowed, that, that allowed the capitalist system of checks and balances to be compromised <coughs> in the first place. We, we vote away accountability through democracy. That's why we have it, <laughs> so we don't have to be accountable. You cannot run an economy by voting. Voting is an adversarial and opposing process. With voting, you have winners and losers. The winners are the majority, the losers are the minority, a condition that has nothing to do with economics. 
under capitalism and free markets, everybody's a winner in the sense that their choices allowed them to be better off than they were before they made the choice. Otherwise, they wouldn't make it. There are no forced choices in capitalism. By that, we mean forced by other people, not forced by your circumstances, your health, the weather, uh, whether a tornado hits your house. This is not force in the nature that we talk about. We, when we talk about force, we mean coercion. We mean human force. And so we live in a mixed economy, and so we get these mixed messages. And a mixed message is like a mixed economy, you know, in these protests, pulling in all directions at once and moving nowhere. And that's what's happening with the Wall Street and Bay Street occupations. The, the mixed economy is to economy as multiculturalism, mixed cultures, is to culture. Both produce political conflict, a conflict between the productive and the non-productive, and that's their purpose. You know, a principle of Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, one of the action bibles of the Clinton administration, and very left-wing, we've been told, although I've used that book as a rule book for action, it's a very good rule book for action, is to make sure that a pro to make a protest effective, it has to be a short event that attracts media attention, during which time the message is delivered by a spokesman or leader, after which the protester gathering should disperse immediately. This tactic has been used with amazing effectiveness by political and interest groups of all colors and stripes. But this is not a protest. They're not even calling it that, Robert. What are they calling it? An occupation. An occupation. Fascinating, isn't it? When was the last time we heard that word? Occupy Palestine? <laughs> Close. Yes, one. But the distinction seems very lost on today's media as it was when First Nations quote-unquote protesters, who weren't protesters, occupied Caledonia, occupied it. And the only thing they ever protested was being called protesters. I have it on tape. The media didn't listen at all. Right two seconds after they tell them what's going on, the media go, oh, well, how are you protesters? You know, I, I recall one of their spokespeople insisting to the radio host of the show she appeared on that the Caledonia occupation was not a protest. It was an occupation, which it has turned out to be. They weren't going away, and they haven't. In fact, McGinty paid them millions, etc., etc. We know how that worked out. It was a disaster. You know, as an occupation, then it makes sense. The lack of a consistent goal among occupiers makes perfect sense. It's not a protest. It's not even, doesn't even have a goal. It's just an occupation. We're just camping out. The occupation is the purpose. Job done. Nothing needs to be said in terms of suggesting solutions or even in terms of defining the problem. But the seemingly endless and purposeless Wall Street, Bay Street protests have no goal, no objectives that that most or that would in the least way address the plight they increasingly find themselves in the midst of. Most of the organizers of these events have union connections, and unions are certainly not known for being business friendly or economically savvy. Unions continually lobby for more government intervention and regulation of the economy, which is the very essence of anti capitalism. You know, Bay Street protesters, they out, you know, we're protesting to highlight the disparity between the rich and poor. So I was thinking, aren't those words all you need to, to, to highlight that disparity? <laughs> That's what the words mean, don't they? Right? So, uh, you know, the problem is, you know, last week we talked about how censoring or treating as taboo and politically incorrect the words that we would use to define evil, like communism, fascism, socialism, and lib left. That's essential if one is able to resist or defeat this evil. But you know what? It works the other way around as well. All the misidentifications and misrepresentations of capitalism that we hear on a constant barrage of confused and misguided activism serve only to obliterate that concept, which is necessary to, to make it become a reality. You have to know what it is. Just as one cannot fight an evil without identifying it and defining it, so too one cannot attain the good 
without a clear and objective way of identifying and defining it. That's the only reason Ayn Rand wrote Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal. She says, I'm not here to defend this. I just want to define it. After that, the rest will take care of itself if, if you've got half a brain. Right? That was her whole approach. That's why she was not really an economist. And she went far beyond stating a mere economic case for capitalism. She laid out the essential and necessary moral principles upon which capitalism was based. So I want to get down to some of those moral principles after this break, and what we're going to hear is, again, some of the economic arguments uh, that we'll hear from Milton Friedman on the other side of the bumper, and on this side, again, uh, a little bit of that envy and, you know, hatred about being in business for yourself <laughs> from the honeymooners. We'll be back right after this. Maybe I made a mistake on one of these business deductions. Now, you listen, and if you think that I'm entitled to what I deducted, you let me know. Go if ahead. not, let me know that, too. Now, I took off the cost of my cleaning the uniform. Right. My union dues, my driver's license. Now, I took off $80 I spent entertaining Freddie Muller, you know, right. every time there was an opening for traffic management. Yeah, yeah. That's all. They're all legitimate. I take off the same kind of things on my income tax. Uh, I take off my union dues uh, deductible. I take off when I have my rubber boots vulcanized. I take off when I have my lunchbox waterproof. And uh, I take off 25% off my rent when I use my apartment for business reasons. Business reasons? You work in a sewer. What possible business could you conduct? Could you possibly write off in your apartment? I practice in a bathtub. You practice in the bathtub and they're investigating my taxes. I think your point is, what sort of government intervention, what for, and what are the trade-offs between government intervention and the free market? These are the relevant issues. What is the role of government in relation to the market economy? How do you see it performing, Don Rumsfeld? Do, do you want to see governments, as it were, enforcing competition by chasing down monopoly, restrictive practices, and all the rest in, the, in society? The record's clear that they don't do it well. They can't manage the... But does that mean they the, shouldn't take do it Take away price controls better. in the United States of America. I happen to have been involved, and I don't say it with any great pride. Uh, <laughs> the real world is, I don't care about good intentions. I don't care about brains. I don't care about integrity. The fact of the matter is, they're not smart enough to manage the wages and prices of every American 215 million strong. They can't do it well. They do it poorly. And the weight of that is harmful. It's... it's, it's it's graphically shown in, in every document issued by the Council of Economic Advisors in the United States. But what about the additional question, though? Does the government properly, in this country or elsewhere, ensure competition by other devices? I'm not talking now about price control, wage control, but ensuring competition rather than permitting price fixing as a, or agreements and, and monopoly. What do you feel about it? I feel the government properly acts in that area. It must, the government must be there to ensure competition. The government's not smart enough. Look at the antitrust law. You talk about a pat, the, the anti implementation of antitrust regulations in the United States between the Department of Justice and the FTC. It's a, it's a patchwork mess. There isn't any logic to it. People don't know what to do. They, don't, they can't get answers. 
They're inhibited from, from uh, mergers and consolidations that would make a lot of sense from the standpoint of the consumer. But as to antitrust, yeah. I am in favor of the laws which make uh, agreements in restraint of trade illegal. Most of the rest of the antitrust apparatus has promoted monopoly instead of hindered monopoly. If you look at where there are mon monopolistic elements in the world and in the United States, including the multinationals you want to refer to, in almost every case, the problem is not how does government enforce competition? How do you keep government from setting up monopolies? That's the real problem if you look at the real world and not at the preamble of the language of antitrust measures and similar laws. How close are you to what uh, Deason was saying a moment ago, though, in this area? He was, seemed to be arguing with you that there was a responsibility to make competition work. The responsibility is to set up a framework of laws and of arrangements under which competition will flourish. And the most... Inevitably flourish? I mean, or... Well, so far as I know, I don't know of any case in history in which monopolies have been able to maintain themselves for very long without having government assistance directly come in on their side. The trade union monopolies that Mr. Deason represents would never have the kind of power they do now if it weren't for the special privileges which government has granted to them. I can perfectly well understand his being in favor of such action, of antitrust action by the government, because it really is pro-monopoly action in the main. This is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, and whether or not you're a capitalist, we need your donation. CHRW needs your donation, whether it's $10, $20, or $50 or more. It's all needed, and right now you may think it's a lot of money, but once we add it all together, it'll be enough. Help us reach this goal. You can get more info about this fun drive 2011 at chrwradio.com. Call us at 519-661-3600 and pledge your support to CHRW. And if the lines are busy, please call again. Got an interesting email, Robert, from a fellow uh, named Kurt. He, all he had to say was, it was actually addressed to uh, one of my email addresses at Freedom Party. And he writes, Dear PM, MP, and MPP, some say the Occupy movement does not have a coherent message. Here's what their message should be. Quote, financial executives need to be sent to jail for their corruption, fraud, and crimes. End quote. And he gave me a link, which took me to a place called newworldparty.org all about politically incorrect politics. And there was an article dated April 7th, uh, or April 8th, 2007, rather, uh, just called Capitalism. And it was a defense of capitalism. And I didn't need to read more than the first two sentences before I knew this was not a capitalist writing. This was a complete communist. Sentence number one. Capitalism is the main creator of wealth for society, from which to distribute and share the wealth. <laughs> <laughs> Albeit, we believe capitalism needs sufficient rules and rule enforcement. Then he says the reason for our capitalistic countries, or the reason our capitalistic countries are wealthy is because of economies of scale or specialization. And I'm thinking, wow, this guy doesn't understand a thing. Not a thing. The whole article, and I got a page of it here, I'm not going to read it, it's all about what we would call comparative advantage. It's an economic term doesn't always mean that you're doing the best or the, you can still make a profit on on something that you don't have a comparative advantage on that that's, that's not what it means but it's mostly about specialization but the point to be made is specialization is not capitalism it's got nothing to do with it specialization and comparative advantage 
you know, economic practices occur in totalitarian countries, too. Hello. Saudi Arabia specializes in oil exports and in terrorism exports. Does that make it capitalistic? They specialize. They've got one product. Saudi Arabia is not capitalistic. The key to wealth is not specialization and comparative advantage, although all these things are an, you know, an element of it. That, you know, capitalism is what results from rational discourse. The key to wealth is living in a free society where you're free to consent to your economic choices and purchases and not forced to make them. You know, Leonard Peikoff reminds us that a mixed economy is not a third way between capitalism and socialism. It's the way to a dictatorship. And the people who are most in favor of this dictatorship, this drift, have, have a name. They're called, he says, liberals and conservatives. <laughs> and both groups are opposed to capitalism. Both endorse Bismarck's welfare state, a highly controlled state of the mixed economy. Both reject extremes of any kind, including what they call the principle of individual rights. Their disagreement pertains to a single question, and we saw it in the last provincial election. What kind of rights should the government violate next? <laughs> Both groups obviously subscribe to the mind-body dichotomy. The conservatives' roots lie in religion. They're the mystics of spirits. The liberals whose roots lie in Marx are mystics of muscle, as he calls them. And about the conservatives, however, who pretend to be defenders of free enterprise or the American way of life while spreading all the opposite ideas and laws, something remains to be said. And I think that fellow we heard protesting at the protest was sort of in the conservative libertarian bent, okay? Precisely because of their pretense, the conservatives are morally lower than the liberals. They are farther removed from reality and therefore more harmful in practice. Since they purport to be fighting big government, they're the main source of political confusion in the public mind. They give people the illusion that they have an, elec an electoral alternative without the fact. There is no electoral on alternative. Therefore, the status drift proceeds unchecked and unchallenged. <coughs> So, you know, a conservative, he says, has to be construed in philosophic terms. It subsumes any quote-unquote rightist who attempts to tie the politics of the founding fathers to unreason in any form, whether it be a Protestant fundamentalist, a Catholic invoking papal dogma, a neoconservative invoking Jude Judaic dogma, a Republican invoking states' rights, which is the very thing we heard that fellow talking about. You know, because he's just seeking 50 tyrannies instead of one, right? And a libertarian invoking anarchism or a southerner invoking racism. Freedom is the very opposite of each and every one of these creeds. The source of capitalism's creativity in a word is freedom, he says, which clears the road for the mind, which is why we have that phrase, free minds, free markets. And, you know, it was Adam Smith who um, unfortunately told us that the value of of capitalism is the public good, which is, you know, therefore individual freedom was either defended as ethically neutral or as a necessary evil, which is, it is neither. It is the good. It is the only moral economic system known to mankind since the fundamental of capitalism is voluntary and consent. You know, that's what, what it's based on, freedom of choice. And as a rule, the defenders of capitalism have been worse and even more irrational than its attackers. The man who spread the notion that capitalism means death for the weak was, was the symptoms leading 19th century champion Herbert Spencer. Capitalism, he held, permits only the survival of the fittest. And he says this is probably the worst defense ever given to capitalism, more harmful than anything that Marx ever said. And so, you know, he explains why this is why intellectuals have never grasped the virtue of capitalism. They did not grasp it a century ago, and they are worse and factually more ignorant today.
In every branch of the social sciences now, our intellectuals are literal know-nothings, especially in the field of specialization, which is what I was just talking about, right? They are know-nothings because of their specialization, because the kind of philosophy their years of academic training have instilled in them. Man needs a philosophy to give him an integrated understanding of the facts. And so he says, you know, an honest man can see that America is now on the brink of chaos and perhaps even suicide, but without philosophy. He cannot identify the opposite principles at work in our mixed economy or even know that the system is a mixed economy. So if a man understands only that, quote, something is wrong, which is what we hear from all the protesters, right? He's vulnerable to those who, who clamor that what is wrong is there's too much capitalism. And that's what's happening. And this was written 50 years ago. Was he sitting there right in the middle of these protests when he wrote this? He says, you know, it's not about two political ideals. It's about two ways of thinking. Capitalism is practical, moral, and true. But no one will know it until they understand these three concepts along with everything they depend on. And that's where we're going to end our show today. We'll be back next week when we hope you'll join us again for our continuing journey in the right direction. We'll see you then. Take care. Fade into color Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be Actually, I have a lot of ideas. I've been working on, thinking about uh, problems. I have a plan for the homeless, you know. Of course, we're in New York City. You have the homeless here. It's hard as it is to believe. And, you know, it gets cold in the winter here. I don't know what you do in January. Just go out with a big set of tongs and pick them up. I feel bad for these poor homeless people, you know. I feel bad for them. And people always tell you, well, don't give the homeless money because they're just going to spend it on booze or drugs, right? Well, I kind of feel like, hey, the guy lives in a box. <laughs> You know, yeah. Well.